When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Between recording the next episode of my podcast, running a business, and all of the things life throws my way, sometimes it's good to just get away. Hola, ¿qué tal? It's Chiquis here. And let me tell you, I love booking a trip where I can escape. There's nothing like spending a few days at the beach, relaxing and spending time with family. No matter what kind of traveler you are, and no matter your reasons, the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Hi, everyone. We're back this week with Essential Voices. I'm Wilmer Valderrama. And I'm Mr. Raquel. This week, we're here with part two of our two-part mini-series, Una Casa de Arcoiris. Last week, we spoke with Cristina Franco Abundis from Casa Arcoiris in Tijuana about the services her space offers, how they brought joy to their residents during the pandemic, and why having spaces like Casa Arcoiris is essential for LGBTQ plus migrants. So today, for part two, we'll cast the net just a bit farther to cover the legal and political factors at play with LGBTQ plus folks seeking asylum. We have two phenomenal lawyers, Lindsay Toslowski and M.M. Dupuy-Morris, to share with us about the current services being provided at the border and their collective work with migrants. Lindsay's based in Los Angeles and works with the Immigrant Defenders Law Center, and M.M. is based in Tijuana and works with the Transgender Law Center, specifically on the Border Butterflies Project. Our roundtable conversation with M.M. and Lindsay starts now. Lindsay and M.M., hi. It's an honor to be here in conversation with you both. Very much looking forward to this discussion. Wilmer, want to kick us off? Well, thank you both for being with us today. I'm very excited to uh, have this conversation. But I'd love to get what your reactions are to Christina's story. Maybe we'll start with you, Lindsay. Sure. Well, thanks for having me today. It's so nice to be here with all of you to talk. So listening to Christina's story, it's, you know, so much of it sounds so familiar because so many of the clients that we work with, some of them came through that program and through that shelter, but many of them have just similar stories of getting to places in Northern Mexico where they're just in dire need of so many services. So as she rattled off all of the different things that they're doing, it's really incredible. And I think while it's both incredible and a testament to the incredible team and the work that they do, it's also an indication of the needs and the trauma and the really precarious situation that people who are seeking asylum, who are migrating um, and who find themselves, you know, at this point, and I'm sure we'll get into this a lot more, but, you know, stuck in places like Casa Curiris, but also all over northern Mexico. Amen. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having this conversation. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and talk about this stuff. Yeah, I guess my reactions are, are similar. Tijuana is really lucky to have two or three shelters that are pretty specifically LGBT. That said, there are currently homeless, housing insecure LGBT people just in Tijuana. So listening to this story, I remember when Akori started, which was late 2018, give or take, and what they've accomplished really at a sprint because it really has been, you know, even before COVID is really incredible. Watching all these advocates really step up and try and fill this need has been really inspiring, really hard, like a whole range of emotions. And hearing all of this, it, it is really amazing. And I think it does speak to how little there is outside of civil society, how little there is outside of volunteers, it's kind of putting your finger in a dam. So it sounds amazing and it is amazing, but you know, it's also just strains whatever staff there is, you know. One of the things she mentioned was how many people stayed for over a year during the pandemic. And I know we'll talk about that more, but normally there's a time limit too, right? So the borders close, no one can cross and people hit that mark of where do I go? And I hear that a lot as a challenge around the housing piece is you're getting all of these services and you're hitting your three month mark and people call us and say, well, what do I do now? You know, and I'm like, well, there's no way across. Right. And there really isn't anything outside of these shelters and just a really limited, limited amount of other resources in Tijuana. I've had the privilege and the honor to be able to see some of the work that's being done on the ground. And uh, my friend Elsa Collins, she has organized multiple trips out there to really understand and gather as much information as possible so we can accurately be able to tell that story to the communities who, in fact, will want to donate and be a part of, you know, the resources that are sent down there. And some of the stories of the LGBTQ community who would arrive and be at a regular shelter, you know, the word pretty eye-opening. I, I, I was just in awe that this was, you know, happening to the community. And thank God, right? Thank God that some of these shelters really came and uh, really were able to specialize and mobilize as quickly as you described, because the stories were just incredibly sobering. But um, I appreciate you bringing that up because there is so much about the border and so much about their stories that has been kind of in many ways, not just marginalized, but now their percentages, their numbers, they're not necessarily a um, human story behind it. So it's a very, um, it's a very disturbing conversation when we hear it on the mainstream or hear it in the news because it's not human driven, even though it is a humanitarian crisis. Amar? Mm, yeah. Great point, Wilmer. And to bring the focus back to Christina, I mean, in her story, we heard her talk about the lack of safe housing for LGBTQ migrants and how Casarcoiris was founded to fill that lack, right? And so today we're all here talking about the grave lack of services, housing, and other essential services that migrants all too often don't have, especially LGBTQ migrants. And it was clear from being in conversation with Cristina that she's all about being of service for her community, which leads me to a question for both of you, M.M. and Lindsay. What drove you to become attorneys and more specifically use your skills to advocate for migrants? And M.M., let's start with you. Sure. Yeah. It's always like a, feels a big question to answer and also really simple in this weird way. So I'll try and be brief. My legal career was kind of bookended with assisting asylum seekers and migrants. I started out very briefly working in an international context with UNHCR and then more locally in New York, and then kind of took a turn and became a public defender doing criminal defense work and did that for quite some time. 
um, and then kind of went back into it a bit within my own office, doing some more like how the intersections of criminal and immigration work. And then starting in about 2016, the organization I now work for, Transgender Law Center, began responding to individual caravans of LGBT migrants that were heading towards the border. Coming out of some of that, I was involved only really as a volunteer in some of those responses that TLC and some other organizations, NIJC and, and an organization called Familia, Trans Queer Liberation Movement. And there started to be conversations around like, there must be a better way to do this. Like we know that LGBT communities are leaving countries. And I think something to remember is that LGBTQ migrants leave countries because of the same reasons as everyone else, plus whatever discrimination and persecution they face. So, you know, we were like, there's got to be a way, right? So all of that was swirling. Um, I then came down to the border when there was the October 2018 caravan. And at that time, it really very much felt like, you know, I don't know, I don't want to be like super spiritual about it, but a bit of a calling. I mean, like our country was trapping people, blocking people, doing everything in the world possible. And it felt as though, well, there are not a lot of lawyers here. It's kind of like we all went to the airport when the Muslim ban happened. And then we all went back to the airport when the second one happened. And this, for me, felt like a bit of a logical extension of that. It felt like this is the place to be trying to fight what our country is implementing, um, you know, a stone's throw from the border. So after about a year, all of a sudden there was kind of more funding for the LGBT specific work. And I just happened to be here and had already kind of been plugged in. So I was then just incredibly honored and still am to be trying to create sort of an LGBTQ specific program that works both in Mexico, the United States. And so that's, I guess, kind of my story. That's amazing what you're saying about this work being a spiritual calling. It makes a lot of sense. And the honor that you're talking about really resonates for me, albeit in a different way. You know, for me as a storyteller, I get to do something I love every day, which is talking to people to hear their stories and connect. And it feels like the biggest honor and, and dream that I could have imagined. So I can really feel that kindred passion you have for your work. And I think that it's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Lindsay, what about you? What has your path been with your work? I think for me, in some ways, it's similar when I hear you talk about it being a calling. I mean, I feel like you know, I've been an immigration attorney now for over 10 years. I've always been a social justice lawyer. I've always been a free lawyer um, to my clients, which is important. And for me, what keeps me going and keeps me in this work is that every single day I know I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I founded the organization that I run now, um, Immigrant Defenders Law Center, we call it MDEF, in 2015. I had worked actually at Catholic Charities at a religious-based organization. Um, and because of the discrimination that they were showing towards clients of ours was a big motivation for us to found an independent organization. I believe really strongly that representation and access to counsel and access to justice should be absolutely universal. It should be, you know, justice for all and no exceptions. Um, and that means that people with criminal convictions, that means sometimes prioritizing communities that are too often left out, particularly Black migrants at the border and LGBTQ migrants. But that sort of universal representation can't be done within the framework of organizations that have existed for a long time and come from, you know, a perspective that 
that discriminates against other people. And so we founded MDEF in 2015 um, with no idea of the election that was about to come that would really change our world. But I founded it with Susan Alba, my co-founder, in our living rooms. And we over the last six years have grown it to, you know, we have a cross-border initiative that works in Tijuana, Mexicali, and San Diego. And we have our headquarters in LA and we have over 120 staff now and almost 50 lawyers that all they do is provide zealous advocacy and representation to thousands of people who otherwise would be forced to go into immigration court alone. Wow. And MM, how about the work that the Transgender Law Center does and uh, more specifically Border Butterflies? Yeah, absolutely. But Border Butterflies is a transnational, I mean, one of the important things is we really are a coalitional project and it's anchored by Transgender Law Center and Familia Trans Queer Liberation Movement, QLM, which is based out of LA. So our project began in earnest in mid to late 2019 And the goal is really to accompany and support LGBTQ migrants from wherever we make contact to where they're, you know, have safety and stability. And that can look a lot of different ways. The vast majority of folks that we do encounter in our project are intending and do want to go to the United States, but we always leave open based on policies and politics around immigration status in Mexico and various other things that sometimes people may want to stay So what that looks like, how it's really shaped out is we do, obviously, the core of TLC's role is legal. So a lot of that is, it has always intended to be and remains like trying to prep people, give people information, sometimes work on a little bit of their asylum case, but at a minimum, get documents, understand, you know, one individual we worked with, for example, had a really serious medical condition and we had all those records and we have the releases. And so when they did end up in detention, we could really quickly respond because he started getting shuffled all over. And I could say, I already have these releases. We don't have to figure out how to get to Mississippi, you know? So that's an example of kind of legal protection, legal preparation. We certainly help connect to attorneys if we don't represent them ourselves. And then it's really turned into a lot of protection within Mexico. I think a lot of people discuss within Mexico talking about a Southern wall, which is at the Southern border of Mexico. And that's moving into Guatemala. And so you have a trans woman from Nicaragua who's trying to get here. And we do a lot of, you know, working with partners to try and get someone facilitate, right? Like we can't help with travel, but really just trying to protect them as they get through Mexico. And then a lot of what we do is connection. People know they can reach out. And I think something about this project and anyone who does this work, I'm sure Lindsay's had this experience as well, is like migration is not direct. People do not go in straight lines. We had one woman who was in Tijuana, then she was in Mexico City for part of the pandemic. She ended up in Piedras Negras, which is another part of the border. A Mexican border official took away her ID and deported her back to Honduras. We're now supporting her in Honduras, trying to help her get back to Mexico. You know, I mean, it's a zigzag, right? I'm just so, so happy that in a way she had people to reach out to. She knew who we were. We just kind of stayed in contact when she was in Mexico City. We stayed in contact when she was in Piedras Negras. And then we're able to try and support with partners in Honduras. So that's a lot of what we do is kind of connection, protection, and then legal support. Wow. What an incredible initiative. And that you maintain contact through all the steps of this migration process, which, as you point out, it's not direct. It's a zigzag. must be difficult, but so important for the migrants that you're assisting to know that you're always there for them each step of the way. And it shows how interconnected the work you both do. 
do is because MM, you're in Tijuana and Lindsay, you're in LA, but you're both working together for a common goal. And this also circles back to Christina, who's a big component of bridging together your work by providing safe housing to LGBTQ migrants as they wait on their asylum cases. We heard Christina talk about her pandemic family, right? The migrants who were all granted asylum in the United States after being with her for a year. So, Lindsay, can you explain more about what happens once folks like Christina's pandemic family arrive in the U.S. and how IMDEF supports these folks during the process? Yeah, in many ways, when people finally are able to cross into the U.S., and I'll say finally because I'm shocked that we've gone this far into this interview without either MM or I bringing up, you know, and naming Title 42, which is the racist Trump policy that is now a Biden policy and being really championed by them, which has shut down our border under the false pretense that it's about stopping the spread of COVID. But it's really an anti-asylum seeker, anti-Black anti-immigration policy. It is not a public health policy. And that's what's led to years worth of people waiting to come in. And there was a brief window of time where certain folks, we were able to get in through an exemption system and that has now ended. And so right now, you know, I was in Tijuana on Tuesday, we were doing Know Your Rights presentations. And at the end, the first question everybody had is, so when will I be able to seek asylum? And literally my answer is, well, nobody knows. And can you imagine getting that answer from a lawyer? Well, you're sitting in a shelter with your kids. And these folks that I was talking to weren't even in a shelter. They're in a refugee camp that is at a closed port of entry in Tijuana right now. This situation is so dire. But for folks who, you know, I would say are lucky to have made it through at this point because it's so few people who are able to access any sort of protection, it really starts another phase of an unjust journey that they have to go through. And just this morning, I was in the downtown LA courthouse sitting and observing what's called the dedicated docket, which is a new docket that's specifically for asylum-seeking families. So almost every single person I saw in court this morning was unrepresented, was a mom with literally holding a baby. And those folks are expected to walk into an immigration courtroom. All of them have ankle monitors on, which when you have somebody go through the trauma of this journey and then get to the United States and be digitally incarcerated with an ankle monitor that beeps when they go too far, it's not charged. It's really horrifying. But folks then are expected to go into an immigration courtroom and unless they are able to find counsel, either because they have means in their family, which is usually country specific. It's certain asylum seekers from certain countries will have the community funds or the family funds to get an attorney. But for the vast majority and particularly Central American asylum seekers who make up the majority of folks on that dedicated docket, they're expected to go into court. And while, you know, balancing their infant on their hip, swear to tell the truth, and then they're defending themselves. And the stakes are they could be sent back with their baby who they're breastfeeding back to a country where they could be killed. And they have to go in and there's a paid government, highly trained attorney whose job it is to get them deported. And they need to go in and represent themselves in a language that they often do not understand in looking at documents that they may or may not be able to read. And today, after every hearing, he would ask, do people want more time to find an attorney? 
And the judge would then hand them a list of organizations in Los Angeles that provide pro bono legal services. And IMDEF is the largest organization in LA that provides pro bono legal services to folks in the LA immigration courts. And I had already told the judge before the first hearing a week ago when I was there that we have absolutely no capacity and that I have confirmed with all of the other organizations, no one has capacity. And yet every single family was handed that list and told to call all the organizations and see if they could find an attorney to represent them. And if they can't, they come back in six weeks and they represent themselves. So when we say like the system itself is designed to deport people, that's why. It's not designed to adjudicate asylum claims. It's designed to deter people from actually accessing protection at all. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to, like, choose a more challenging route than just, like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been, like, easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Hola, ¿qué tal? This is Cheekies from the Cheekies and Chill podcast. For whatever reason, or absolutely no reason at all, sometimes we all just need some time to turn off and get away. A lot of times on the My Cultura podcast network, our storytellers share their adventures and tips for living our best lives. And why not? With the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card, you can easily check off all those dreamy destinations. Como la playa que viste en ese show or climbing that mountain on your screensaver. I see you. No matter what kind of traveler you are and no matter the reason, the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. To Essential Voices. I've had an opportunity to sit in these courtrooms just to listen. And sometimes it's like, I hate to say it, but it's like literally a car factory. And it breaks my heart because they're sitting there and they're waiting for a moment in front of the judge. And the judge doesn't even make eye contact with them at all. They just do their protocol three or four sentences and then they give it another date. Oh, it is what it is. It was very emotional for me to be in those rooms and see how many cases they see a day without any real hearing. And they call them hearings. You know, which is really intense, but MR. Thanks for sharing that experience with us, Wilmer. You know, it sounds like we're talking about trauma now, the trauma that migrants experience during this asylum process. Lindsay, you mentioned this trauma, and Wilmer, you're alluding to it now when you talk about sitting in the courtroom watching these cases as an outsider. You can still feel it deeply. Trauma-informed care seems necessary to the work that both of you, M.M. and Lindsay, are doing on a daily basis. And mental health resources, which is perhaps an umbrella term covering aspects of trauma-informed care, was also a big component of what Cristina mentioned that Casarcoiris offers their residents. So for you at IMDEF, Lindsay, you have a program that specifically addresses trauma called the Family Unity Project. Could you share more about this program and how you address trauma in your work? 
NMM, if you'd like to add anything in afterwards, please jump in. It's really compounded trauma lots of times, particularly by the time people are joining our communities and here in LA or throughout Southern California, because often there's the trauma of the original reason that the person had to flee their country. People have fled for so many different reasons, but they carry that with them. And there's such profound loss, also a loss of community, loss of family when people have to leave. And then the journey itself can be so traumatic. And I'm sure MM can talk more about, you know, just some of the specifics that folks face, especially now being trapped in Tijuana and other cities. But once folks get here, we really try and support in a variety of ways. But IMDEF, we also recognize that we are ultimately a social justice law firm. And so we're best served when we work collaboratively with others who are experts um, in providing services. So we have an entire case management unit and their job is to ensure that our clients are referred to the best organizations that can provide culturally competent, comprehensive medical, mental health, housing, food security programs. Um, And so they are very busy making sure that our clients can do that or receive all those services. But the reason that that's so important is because if somebody is unable to have mental health treatment, access the medications that they need, access the services they need, be in therapy, they're unable to participate meaningfully in the biggest fight of their lives, which is defending themselves against deportation. So we want to be able to provide something to our families that we work with that gets them to a place where they can meaningfully participate. And the Family Unity Project that you mentioned, that was actually born out of the family separation crisis. And that project specifically works with families that we help to reunite. The kids were all over the country. Parents were detained all over the country. And because L.A., is such a receiving site for so many migrants from all over the world. We have a large population of families that were ripped apart at the border in 2018 and who have been reunited and are still recovering from that. And so we are still fighting for them not to get deported, even after they were so gravely harmed. And we also have expanded that project to recognize that every single time somebody ends up in an ICE prison because they're, you know, ripped off the streets of LA, they're picked up on their way to drop their kids off at school. When that happens, it is really another family separation. And so we want to recognize that and recognize that incarcerating people in ICE prisons, forcing people to remain in Mexico, forcing people to not be able to access the system at all, um, and deportations, all of those are forms of family separation. And, you know, I often say I want to channel the outrage that everybody had in 2018 and be like, it's still happening. It's happening every day. It's happening right now in a courtroom in downtown L.A. It's happening in Tijuana. Those family separations are happening and the urgency is still here, still under Biden. Mm, Wow. Powerful. Thank you so much for providing that context, Lindsay. It's truly incredible work that you're doing in the face of such dire situations with the family separations that you're describing. Thanks for sharing that. MM, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, one thing that Christina didn't talk about, which I understand why, because of the focus of her work and how amazing she is, but There's trauma to her staff. There's trauma to her. There's trauma to everyone down here. Um, You know, so one of the things we try and look at is how can we nimbly engage in trauma practices? So what little things can we do in our office that might help somebody just in that moment get through an interview? 
And then also we have funding and we're starting to build a program that would help begin treatment here and then give them some ability to transfer that to the United States. So it's like mental health needs don't end when someone goes from Mexico to the United States. And wouldn't it be beautiful if there was some bridge, some check-in, some kind of continuity? And that's kind of a pipe dream at this point, but we're slowly building that out. And I think all the shelters are trying to figure out this really huge need. And I think that kind of loops back kind of as an endpoint of, of staff. I was trained as an attorney, but often I'm thinking, okay, this person is you know, having an anxiety attack. How can I help mitigate that or, or address that? And it's not about my legal skills in that moment, right? And that's true as well for shelter staff. And that's true as well for every volunteer is trying to recognize trauma and recognize behaviors and, and figure out how can I intervene in this moment. And in saying all that, I guess it's important to mention like the incredible resiliency of people through all of this. So it's really about us, you know, in dialogue with them, like, you know, some people don't want a psychologist in the shelter because they're like, I don't know who they're talking to, you know, like they're employed by the shelter. And then I'm complaining about the shelter, you know, because I don't like being in a room with six people. And so it's, it's about being really nimble in our responses and really listening to communities. You know, what, what does mental health look like to you? What would help you? And a lot of times people talk about not being able to sleep or just feeling really anxious all the time. And so we started doing little groups of just like exercises, like how to slow down your breathing. You know, and a lot of people really love that tapping, things like that, that are, you know, not so much like I need a psychiatrist. It's just some sort of intervention. And when you put it in the context of nobody knows when they get out of here, Tijuana is a, a spot sometimes where it's hard because it's like you're, you're struggling to get out of Tapachula and you're struggling to get out of Honduras and you're struggling to get through Mexico and you get to Tijuana and you can see the U.S. And then we're like, sorry, we don't know when you're going to get there because Joe Biden has arbitrarily closed the border, you know, and that's really hard. Do I get a job? Do I get an apartment? When do I get to leave? You know, I'm unsafe here. And, you know, I think that also adds a lot of trauma and a lot of mental health issues, understandably so. Thanks so much, MM. What you're saying is about asking folks like, what would help you? What do you need? And that can make all the difference, right? It's tapping into each person's individual needs instead of just having one standardized system because what works for one person doesn't work for everyone. And that support doesn't always look like therapy. It can vary for each person, which also brings us back to Cristina and the focus that Casa Arcoiris has on bringing joy to their residents through the arts and how they found creative ways to lift their residents' spirits during the most anguish-filled times during lockdown. And so today, this conversation so far has touched upon a lot of the ways that immigration policies actively make situations worse for migrants, contributing to this anguish that Cristina was talking about. But in thinking about bringing joy during times of anguish, it makes me wonder what you would both like to see change within immigration policies. It's a big question. <laughs> um, but Lindsay, let's start with you. What changes would you like to see implemented? Yeah, it's a big question. I mean, we have legislation in Washington right now and through the reconciliation process, if the vice president and the Senate would ignore the unelected parliamentarians advice, we could have relief for millions of undocumented people living in the United States. That should absolutely happen. And that would benefit a lot of people. It's hard sometimes as somebody who spends a lot of time at the border to see even under this administration, this constant need, this knee-jerk reaction to push back against anybody newly arriving to the United States. 
to constantly feel that there is somehow some way that you can deter people from seeking protection when their lives are at risk. That you can tell, you know, it's heartbreaking to see President Biden and Vice President Harris, who campaigned on this message of we are going to restore humanity at our border, to be telling people don't come. Seeing that, it breaks my heart because it's a very misunderstood idea of what people are fleeing, of what the stakes are. It's a misunderstanding that people think about what the policy is before they flee for their lives with their kids in their arms. So I would say, yes, we need to move forward comprehensive immigration reform. We need to do that this year under reconciliation. Democrats have to stop being so scared and just actually do it. But we also have to remember that the border and people seeking protection and asylum seekers Title 42 needs to be rescinded immediately, and we need to figure out a way to safely welcome people with dignity. And until we have a policy that puts that as the priority at our border, we will continue to see undocumented folks having to live in the shadows in the United States, and we'll continue to see the real horror that we see at the border today. So I think it's like a two-pronged approach that I think is so important. We'll be right back after this break. When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Hola, que tal? This is Cheekies from the Cheekies and Chill podcast. For whatever reason, or absolutely no reason at all, Sometimes we all just need some time to turn off and get away. A lot of times on the My Cultura podcast network, our storytellers share their adventures and tips for living our best lives. And why not? With the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card, you can easily check off all those dreamy destinations, como la playa que viste en ese show, or climbing that mountain on your screensaver. I see you. No matter what kind of traveler you are, and no matter the reason, The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. Welcome back to Essential Voices. Thank you, Lindsay, for shedding light on the current legislation and what your two-pronged approach is. And although what Lindsay described applies to LGBTQ migrants as well, um, what about you, MM? What changes would you like to see specifically implemented for LGBTQ migrants? Any immigration policy affects LGBT people either maybe slightly better every now and then, but mostly worse. And so everything Lindsay just said applies to every single LGBTQ identified person who's subject to the immigration system in the United States, for sure. Um, I'll start where I'm at, which is on the Mexico side, which is plus a million to what Lindsay said, which is that I think a lot of people don't understand that the border is closed and that 
you know, because it isn't right. I can cross today and millions of truckers can cross today and your t-shirts can cross and your avocados cross, but migrants cannot cross. And, you know, that's obviously nonsensical, but that is where we're at. And that at this point is Joe Biden's choice on a daily basis. So Number one, like people need to get across. People are not safe here. LGBT people are not exempt. We have a number of Jamaican LGBT individuals that we are supporting. They do not speak Spanish. They are not safe. They don't have anywhere to stay. They have a harder time finding shelters. They don't get a special cross the border pass. So that's my number one. Um, Detention is another one where it's not okay for anybody. It's a carceral system that is unnecessary for asylum seekers, but we're involved in an end trans detention campaign there should not be transgender people in detention. You know, detention, whether it should be or shouldn't be, is male or female, and any workaround of that kind of thing doesn't really work. We have trans men in particular who end up in solitary confinement for years while they're waiting for their case to be adjudicated. So no one should be in detention, but I would say for LGBTQ communities, it is disproportionately difficult to be in detention. Um, work authorization is another one that I think a lot of people are unaware of specifically for asylum seekers. The first question we get when people cross the border and we've already told them, but I think they're just like, when, how can I go about getting my work permit? I want to get to work and get myself up and running. Well, sorry, you can't for a really long time. And that's something else that I think a lot of people don't know. And that's something that really affects our clients. You know, we end up saying this might take a year to get you a work permit. And what are you supposed to do in the meantime? I don't know. This can affect LGBT migrants just as much as anyone else, but particularly so because they're often pushed into pretty vulnerable work situations, more at risk of trafficking, more at risk of policing, more at risk of everything that affects LGBT communities in the United States. So, I mean, the fact that we're preventing people from getting themselves established, right? Um, We're forcing them to not have an income or make one under the table is one of the problems that I think is really important. We make sure that everyone has a lawyer, but right now there are not enough. It's hard for people to do it for very long. It's hard for people to want to do it to begin with. So I definitely think that the immigration court, I do think it's important. And the reason I put that on my list actually was that I think people would be shocked how many people within the LGBTQ communities identifying as gay or trans or queer in some way lose their cases. We run across people all the time in Mexico. Of the hundreds of people in our project right now, we have people who are in detention and gave up because they thought a guard was going to sexually assault them or did sexually assault them or they were bullied in detention or it was just too hard. People who were staying with family members who it turned out were absolutely not affirming of their identities and they left. People who just lost because judges have quotas in certain, you know, the immigration system is not equal in all parts of the United States. The law is the same, but it is not applied the same. And we have people all the time who tell me, well, that I didn't have a lawyer and the judge told me I needed evidence or the judge didn't believe me or I I didn't highlight being gay as much as other things because it was like in a courtroom and I don't know these people. So I think people would be absolutely shocked. I think even among attorney communities, sometimes I hear, well, yeah, I'll take a queer case because, you know, you'll win that. And it's like, well, sometimes yes, you know, but they can be really difficult. And we have a lot of people trying to reenter the United States because they were deported and got back to wherever they left to begin with. And, you know, nothing was better. And so I really do think fair and more robust legal services are really important, although absolutely not an answer (laughs) to, to the greater systemic issue. 
there's so much about immigration and that conversation. There's just tons of scenarios and categories and people, you know, that have their reasons and different soulful reasons for the why to migrate. And um, when I think about just the hopeful image that both of you represent for your clients, just to have a meeting, to sit down with you, to have a coffee, to just be heard and have you really to create some type of roadmap. Okay, we're going to we're going to work this way. We're going to we're going to see how far we get. That alone can keep so many of our people alive. You know, that's the beacon. That's the image. That's what you want at the end of the road. You just want to see a little bit of a light and both of you bring that to these communities. And I'm excited that we were able to shine so much light on, on so much of the infrastructure that has been fractured over and over again and that it continues to crumble every time we go into a, an administration that says, okay, we're going to fix it. You know, that's the first thing we're going to do. And then all of a sudden they get hit with the mandate and uh, it starts getting pushed lower and lower and lower. Meanwhile, people are going to sleep and waking up, going to sleep and waking up, you know, in the border waiting in these shelters for just a conversation that moves the needle forward. So I'm proud and blessed to have been listening to your wisdom. Thank you for being able to paint such a picture for everyone who's listening to this. Um, so two things. One is how can the community continue to support the, the work that you're doing? And briefly, also, what message do you have to those future leaders who, who at some point may sit where you're sitting and might be part of that change or that light and that hope that you bring these communities? And uh, we'll start with Lindsay. I think there are so many things that people can do to get involved with this work and to support our work. One of them is just to follow on social media and donate to orgs that are doing the work on the front lines right now in this moment because of the crisis we're seeing with Haitian migrants. I'd specifically encourage folks to donate to Black-led organizations that are leading the fight for justice for those communities, the Haitian Bridge Alliance, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, and Undocky Black are three that I would say people should be following them and, and looking for calls to action from those organizations. But beyond um, sort of lifting things up on social media and using your platforms and for folks, you know, in the industry telling authentic stories about what's happening at the border, I would also say that, you know, it really starts in your own communities. If you're, you know, in a place like Los Angeles or New York or Miami, you have asylum seekers in your community. You have unaccompanied children who are going to the same schools your kids are going to. So reach out to those families, reach out to organizations like IMDEF that are doing the work in your community and ask them, like, are there folks who need a ride to immigration court? People don't realize that if someone can't get to immigration court, they're ordered deported in their absence. So sometimes you can help save someone's life by picking them up and driving them where they need to go. Bring a kid to their asylum interview. Invite a family that you can tell has recently arrived for dinner at your house, because all of that is an important part of integrating people into our communities, of making them feel welcome, and of doing it with dignity, which is something that's not happening. It's something our government's not doing, so we as community members should be doing it. And in regards to what I would say to, you know, especially um, someone who's considering going into this line of work, I often hear lawyers like kind of make this joke that someone told me they were going to go to law school and, and I told them not to. And every time I see that joke, I actually feel the exact opposite. I feel like I have the best job in the entire world. Yes, it's hard. It is 
traumatizing. It is oftentimes heart-wrenching, but I know every single day when I wake up, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And so we need more people in this fight. We need more people who are culturally competent. We need people who speak the languages. We need more people that have experienced this themselves to be doing this work and more allies to choose this career path. And that also means that we need to financially support the organizations because we have to make this type of social justice work accessible to everyone, even those who come from the communities we serve. And that requires us being able to pay fair salaries and be fair to our workers as well. Thanks, M.M. It's really just about really amplifying and standing in solidarity and standing in community with folks, whatever that looks like to you. So for me, it's lawyer and for Someone else in my staff, it's therapist, and that's not something I would be probably very good at. Um, so I just really think that there's a place for everyone. And in terms of really how to help now, kind of transitioning into that part of the question, I really encourage people that it's local first. You know your community the best, and there are immigrants everywhere. I am from Idaho. There are immigrants there. People don't know that, but there are. You know, there are immigrants in Iowa, in Nebraska, in Texas, everywhere. And obviously, there are certain places, there are concentration of migrants and nationalities. There are also immigrants from everywhere. So I really encourage people to look locally first. And as you do that, you know, it's like amazing what happens. I think people suddenly are in state capitals. It happens all the time. People are like, I went to court with the person that I'm sponsoring. And oh my God, I have never seen anything so horrific. And then they do like a petition and then they get the school to pass a something and then they're in Congress. So, you know, I mean, so I, I really encourage people to start with what you know the best. I don't think you have to come to Mexico necessarily, right? And the other thing that I really encourage people to do is very few calls can move a congressman or a senator. A small amount of people can really affect these things. And it's really important to understand the issues. I, I have never heard anything explained so terribly, so across the board, you know. I was in a doctor's office the other day and people who thought they'd watch the news and thought they knew what was going on at the border with respect to migrants, it didn't. And so it's just really important, you know, to take the time and to try and really ask questions and really look at it, in my view, through a lens of what would I want for myself? What would I want for a neighbor? And I think it's not about the law and it's not about politics. It really is that. I definitely wholeheartedly recommend following the three organizations Lindsay brought up, Haitian Bridge, um, Undocu Black, Baji or Black Alliance for Justice for Immigrants. LGBTQ specific is the Black LGBT Migrant Project who also does a ton of work around these things. There's some trans-led organizations, Familia, TQLM, Casa Ruby, a number of others that is a really great place to start. Reach out, how can I help you? Trans Queer Pueblo does all kinds of stuff in the Southwest. And I bring those up because those are people often with immigrant experiences who speak indigenous languages, but almost always do not have any funding. They are doing it after the three jobs they have to support their family because they see it as urgent. They see it as non-negotiable, but we all need to help amplify and lift up that work. So if you don't have time, donate to who you know is doing good work. But I really think there are so many amazing trans and queer-led organizations on both sides of the border who are just doing this after they're off their second shift and took their kids to soccer practice. And then they're out at a detention center parking lot to pick someone up and just take them to get some food. 
And that's one of the things we really try and do is amplify those voices and those folks because they're the ones who can really speak to what's going on and the actual experience of these folks. Fantastic. Thank you, Imam. Thank you, Lindsay, so much for your time and uh, my gratitude for all that you do and for being with us today. Wow, just wow. I'm haunted by Lindsay's words of the system being so broken that having a good lawyer just isn't enough. And there aren't even enough lawyers to go around. The much less services for LGBTQ plus migrants and asylum seekers wanting to be granted asylum in the United States. Yeah, and this is why I'm all the more grateful for organizations like the Transgender Law Center, Border Butterflies, the Immigrant Defenders Law Center, and Casa Arcoiris, and that we get to have conversations like the one we had today. Me too. And going back to the heart of this miniseries, I love that the name of Christina's space is Casa Arcoiris. Arcoiris in Spanish means rainbow. So a rainbow feels like a fitting metaphor for the hope it provides. Hope that both Lindsay and M.M. gave me with their work. Exactly. A rare but beautiful sight after the storm passes. To our listeners, please support Christina's work at Casa Arcoiris by following them on social media at Albergue Casa Arcoiris. That's A-L-B-E-R-G-U-E-C-A-S-A-A-R-C-O-I-R-I-S on Instagram or donating if you can. Any support goes a very long way and their doors are always open. Follow MN's work with the Transgender Law Center at Trans Law Center and Lindsay's work with MDEF at MDEF underscore Law Center. That's I-M-M-D-E-F underscore Law Center, both on Instagram. Well, that wraps up our mini-series, Una Casa de Arcoiris. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it. Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, M.R. Raquel, Allison Shano, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman, executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by M.R. Raquel and Sean Tracy and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to last week's Essential Voice, Cristina Franco Abundis from Casa Arcoiris in Tijuana, and to our thought leaders for this episode, Lindsay Toslowski from the Immigrant Defenders Law Center and M.M. Dupuy-Morris from the Transgender Law Center. Additional thanks to Yolanda Celine Walther-Mead, Letty Martinez-Hermosillo, Chris Chambers, Anna Berry, Lorena Bordever, Renee Garcia, and Nila Goshal. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learned something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Between recording the next episode of my podcast, running a business, and all of the things life throws my way, sometimes it's good to just get away. Hola, que tal? It's Chiquis here. And let me tell you, I love booking a trip where I can escape. There's nothing like spending a few days at the beach, relaxing, and spending time with family. No matter what kind of traveler you are, 
And no matter your reasons, the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.